Religion, the podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. And listeners, we are back at it to deliver an epic episode for you. Today, we're discussing a very serious topic that has affected so many lives and sadly has taken so many lives. Our conversation today is on the topic of mass shootings. Uh, Most accept the definition of mass shootings to be where four or more people are killed or injured and just wanted to give you a little bit of clarity of what we're talking about here with mass shootings. And to help us to kind of handle this heavy discussion, we're joined today by Dr. John R. Lott Jr., an economist, well-recognized expert on guns and crime, and also the founder and president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, which CPRC. So to give you a little background, listeners, on Dr. Lott, during the Trump administration, Dr. Lott served as a senior advisor for research and statistics in the Office of Justice Programs and then the Office of Legal Policy in the U.S. Department of Justice. He has held numerous research and teaching positions at various institutions and has served as a chief economist at the United States Sentencing Commission. Dr. Lott has published over 100 articles in peer-reviewed academic journals and written 10 books. Among economics, business, and law professors, his research is currently the 15th most downloaded in the world. So listeners, what an incredible guest to speak on this topic. And Dr. Lott, thank you for joining us today. Well, Adrian, thanks for having me on. It's great to talk to you and Devin. Perfect, perfect. So listeners, to get us started here within our first segment, we're going to talk a little bit about current events and some of the commentary around a lot of the recent mass shootings. So um, Dr. Lott, I was doing a little digging. I saw on the Washington Post, you know, they put together a calendar of mass shootings for 2022. And it looks like we are uh, we're on a we're on a trend here. You know, it seems like on average there's uh, more than one per day. Um, there's not a single uh, calendar week that goes by that there's not at least four mass shootings. And like I said, this is all coming from the Washington Post calendar. Um, we've got looks like about over 300 mass shootings so far this year. Um, last year we had about 700. 2020 was about 600. 2019 about 400. So we've had a lot, and some agencies are getting ready for what they say is quote a bloody year. And in previous episodes, Dr. Lott, we've mentioned how mental health is a reason for maybe a lot of this rise in violent gun crimes. But from the research that y'all have looked into um, at your organization, what, what, is, what, are, what are y'all pointing to that might lead us to some of those answers as to why these incidents are occurring so frequently lately? Right. Well, thanks. I think, first of all, we need to distinguish between a couple different things. The FBI and Department of Homeland Security have different definitions. There's mass shootings, and then there's something called mass public shootings. Mass shootings, according to the government definitions, are any time where you have four or more people killed by uh, a gun. Uh, Mass public shootings are trying to get more at the types of cases where you have a shooting at a school or at a mall or a movie theater where the point is simply to go and kill people. Um, And, uh, you know, you have one person walk in like in Indianapolis recently and try to start shooting in the mall just to kill people. And uh, those are much fewer. So, uh, and what they do in that, they'll say four more people killed in a public place, not involving some other type of crime or drug gangs fighting over drug turf. And the reason why that's important is that 
about 87% of the mass shootings involved drug gangs fighting over drug turf. And, uh, you know, that's important. Uh, but the causes and solutions for those types of attacks are very different than they are for the type of thing where somebody's going into a mall or a movie theater with the notion of just trying to go and kill people. Overwhelmingly, the people that engage in these mass public shootings are suicidal. They're people who want to die, but at some place along the line, those individuals discovered that people could know who they were, you know, that they were here on this earth if they do something and they know the more people they kill, the more media attention they get. If you read the diaries, if you read uh, the manifestos that these murderers leave, uh, you'll constantly come across statements like, if I can only kill more people than such and such did, then I can get even more media attention. And, uh, <clears throat> You know, often you'll hear, you know, somebody like the president say things like he'll mention some of these mass public shootings and then he'll mention the 300 number that you're mentioning. Uh, there's one other point, and that is there's even different definitions of mass shootings. So while the FBI uh, has traditionally had th four or more people killed, the, the number that when you have over 300, the way they define that is three or more people shot, so it could include people who are wounded and or killed, and the vast majority of those cases wound. Again, they're important, but again, the vast majority of those involve drug gangs or they involve things like a robbery where in the course of the robbery, the robber has shot the people that he was trying to, uh, trying to rob. So, um, you know, just to give you an example, the differences in the causes and solutions, since these mass public shootings overwhelmingly involve people who are trying to commit suicide and who want to get media attention, the question is, how do you take away their media attention? And when you read the diaries and manifestos from these people, they may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. They keep talking about going to places where they know their victims won't be able to defend themselves. So you take something like the Buffalo uh, mass murderer, this racist who went in there just trying to kill uh, blacks. Uh, if you read his manifesto, he goes into great detail about why he picked the target that he did. And his top reason was he wanted to go to a place where he knew his victims would not have concealed handguns to be able to go and protect themselves because he said explicitly that going to a place where his victims weren't armed would make it easier for him to kill lots of people and to then get media attention uh, for his attack. And, uh, you know, it's something you see time after time. These guys are smart enough to know that they're going to be more successful if they go to a gun-free zone. And 96% of these mass public shootings take place in areas where guns are banned. Yeah, and I hear you, you know, on those points. And I'm, I did have a question, though, as far as the media attention and sort of these, these manifestos that are being left behind and they're picking their targets in areas where they know they're going to be 
at ease, whether that's the grocery store or school or the mall. Uh, but these things do seem to be happening more frequently. And you said that their their goal seems to be to go out in sort of this grand fashion. They're going to die that right. day in this grand fashion and get all of this media attention. But that has, we've always had media, right? Like, you know, of course, the, the internet is kind of the new thing where we have social media, where the attention is a lot different. But we've always had the media, but these things didn't happen, you know, before 2000s, 90s, 80s, 70s. They didn't happen at the frequency we're seeing them. So what do you think is different now? Is it just the rise of social media that's playing a role? Or is this, is there some sort of underlying mental health, you know, situation that we're just not being able to put our finger on where it's causing these folks to be able to, you know, sort of live these out, these lives online where they're separated completely from society. Um, you know, what do you think is behind that? Because this didn't used to happen, but the media has always right. existed. Right. The media has always existed and suicide has always existed. Uh, but I think what changed is that someplace along the line uh, in the 1990s, uh, people discovered that they could get a lot of attention if they committed suicide in this way. So it was kind of an innovation. They discovered this, and you see a real contagion effect that occurs, that when the media covers these things and gets a lot of attention. You know, I'll give you an example. You look at the Sandy Hook murderer. Uh, he put together what the police described as essentially a doctoral dissertation where he had looked at mass public shootings around the world over a 40-year period of time. And he had graphed out the relationship between the number of people killed and attacks and the amount of media attention that he was going to get, uh, that they got, to go and prove to himself that if he could go and kill more people, he could get even more media attention. Um, according to one police report, he wanted to go and kill more people than the Norway killer had killed. Uh, about a decade ago, the Norway killer shot to death 67 people. That's more than any mass public shooting in the United States. And he got huge, massive worldwide news attention. And Adam Lanza's goal was to go and get even more media attention than the Norway killer had gotten. Um, so... I, you know, people have always wanted to commit suicide. It's just you have people who feel unappreciated in some place along the line in the 1990s where you had a few of these cases that got massive news attention. It dawned on these suicidal individuals that, geez, I could also go and get this attention and people would also know that I was here. Uh, and they explicitly talk about it. You know, they explicitly say, I'm unappreciated. Uh, you know, girls won't go out with me on dates. And if I can kill lots of people, everybody will know that I'm here. I will be, uh, one phrase that you see many times is, I will be in the history books if they can go and do that. Before that, they didn't realize that they could go and be in the history books like that. You, you've mentioned mental illness a couple times now. Just one thing to mention. in over the last 25 years, 50% uh, of these mass uh, public shooters were actually seeing mental health care professionals prior to engaging in their attack. And yet in not one single case 
were the mental health care professionals able to identify these individuals as a danger to themselves or others? Uh, you know, you have recent cases. You have uh, the Buffalo uh, murderer. Um, he had actually seen two mental health care professionals uh, a year before his attack. Uh, he was in high school. And a teacher had gone up to him and asked, well, what are you going to be doing over the summer? And he said he was going to find a school having summer school classes, and he was going to shoot up the school and commit suicide. Obviously, the teacher was alarmed. She went and flagged him. Uh, mental health care, two mental health care experts interviewed him, uh, and they asked him about his statement. He said, well, you know, I was just joking. You know, it was just a stupid joke. I shouldn't have said it. And they said, okay, fine. Um, and uh, they, they let him go. You look at the Uvalde uh, murderer. He had also seen a mental health care expert beforehand. Uh, and again, he was not flagged as a danger to himself or others. There's a whole academic literature in psychology and psychiatry about their inability to go and identify these individuals as a danger to themselves or others. And they have a whole list of reasons why they can't do it up among there. The top is just how rare uh, these attackers are. Uh, you take something like schizophrenia, for example. Uh, in any given year, there's about two and a half million people who suffer from schizophrenia. Uh, but over the over the 25 years, last 25 years, there's been one case where we're certain of that the person had schizophrenia. And so uh, the mental health care professionals just say, look, these are just such rare events. It's very difficult for us to determine these things. So I, I have no problem spending more money on mental health care, but you just have to realize, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult relying on it to go and uh, identify these individuals before they do the attacks. Wow. You know, Dr. Lott, you've said some really uh, uh, amazing statements throughout this uh, first segment. Um, and, and listeners, I hope you're able to kind of pick up on some of this stuff when we're really talking about, you know, differentiating mass shootings versus mass public shootings. And I know, Dr. Lott, there's, you know, I, I don't really profess to be a Democrat or a Republican. I know that both administrations can use whatever sort of definition that kind of fits them at the time. So I am glad that you kind of really, you know, set the stage between that. And I'm also glad that you did address what we kept talking about with mental health, because I think it's important to look at those sort of statistics that you threw out to say that even in, you know, ad you know, addressing the mental health of these individuals, uh, it still makes it a cumbersome task to identify who is more prone to do a public mass shooting. Uh, and we know that there's so much gun violence, like even, you know, listeners, just so you know, you know, what we're talking about, mass shootings, accounts for a very, very, very small percentage of, you know, gun crimes here in America. Suicide, which I know Dr. Lott has mentioned, I believe is still kind of the highest with um, yeah. gun violence. And, and it, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, Dr. Lott. Well, you're right. You're right. I mean, if you okay. if you add together suicides, murders, and uh, external gun deaths, uh, suicides make about 70% of the total that are there. Uh, people often use homicides rather than murders, uh, just 
Most people don't realize that there's a difference between the two. Homicides include murders plus justifiable homicides. And it's never really been obvious to me why those two things are lumped together. If a woman uh, defends herself against somebody breaking into her home at 2 a.m. in the morning, that seems fundamentally different than somebody killing somebody in a robbery or a gang fight or something. But anyway, uh, but it's about no, 70, I'm glad yeah, you- it's about 70%. No, exactly. That is great context to start this conversation. Um, But listeners, what we're going to do, we're going to give you your first break here. And when we come back, we want to dig into this a little bit further, um, because there's a lot of debate out there that talks about mass uh, murders, mass shootings, you know, however we want to define it. It's that it's more of an American problem. And we want to kind of dive off into some of this stuff. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with other organizations? Maybe you'd like to advertise or even appear on our show. If so, go to our website, blackagendapod.com, or while you're listening, click the donate link in the timestamps. Thank you for your support and your belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. Let's get into our second segment here. Remember, we're joined today by Dr. John Arlott Jr. Remember, he's the 15th most downloaded economist in the world. Really, really uh, uh, great accolade there. And listeners, to talk about the second segment here, like I said before the break, a lot of people say this is an American problem. Um, even going back to when President Obama was in office, you know, after uh, in 2015, he mentioned how, you know, this happens every time and it's something that doesn't happen as frequently in other advanced countries. And Dr. Lott, you know, I liked how your organization, you know, came to kind of counter that. And I even, you know, did some other fact checking where like organizations like Politi- uh, Politico or PolitiFact or whatever, you know, other fact checkers did dispute President Obama's claim as far as what he said. But whenever I did look at some of the research and looked at the numbers, it does seem to be that, you know, I guess maybe how the definitions are, the United States does have a high number of these sorts of, you know, mass shootings or public mass shootings comparably to other countries. And some, you know, opponents will even say that, well, it depends on how you look at it. Some people look at deaths per million, where if it's a smaller country, obviously they're going to seem higher. So, Dr. Lott, whenever we talk about is this an American problem, does it come down to how you interpret the data or, you know, what, what, what does that really mean? You're exactly right, Adrian. Look, um, if I were to compare murders in California versus Wyoming, I assume no one would just take the total number of murders in California and the total number of murders in Wyoming, the most populous and the least populous states in the country. I mean, California is about 40 million people. Wyoming has 600,000. Uh, what you'd want to do if you wanted to talk about what's the risk of being murdered in those two places, you would look at the murder rate, the murders per 100,000 people or per million people or whatever it was you'd look at there in order to get some idea what's the probability of that happening. Well, you have to do the same things when you're talking about mass public shootings or mass shootings, and that is um, the United States has 332 million people in it. You look at Europe, you have lots of countries in Europe, for example, that have 3 million or 5 million or 8 million or 10 million people. 
Those are huge differences in terms of the number of people there. That's kind of like comparing California and Wyoming. And the most populous country in Europe is Germany. Uh, they have 80 million people. So that's less than one fourth the population that we have. And they're by far the most populous country uh, in Europe. So you have to look at these things adjusting for population if you're going to make any sense of it, because a country with 332 million, even if the risk is is the same as it is for a country with 5 million, you're going to have a lot more of whatever it is you're looking at. And when you do that, there are many countries in Europe, even Western Europe, that have higher per capita rates of frequencies or murders from mass public shootings. So i just give you an example. You look at the last 10 years. Can you name for me, just comparing only Western Europe and the United States, where the worst mass public shooting has been? It's been in Paris in November uh, 2015 at a concert there. 130 people were killed. Mm -hmm. uh, the second worst mass public shooting was a decade ago in Norway, where if you just look at the shooting deaths, uh, and ignore the bombing deaths because you also set off bombs. You had 67 people that were shot to death on that one island, young people that he uh, attacked. Now, uh, you know, you look at something like school shootings. Uh, since 2000, the United States, including Uvalde, has had nine school shootings where four more people have been killed. Germany has had three mass uh, public school shootings. They had one where 18 people were killed, another one where 15 people were killed, another one where four people were killed. But when you realize that Germany has less than a fourth of the population, that would be if they were the same size in population as the United States, you'd expect them to have 12, which is more than our nine. But it's just People just look at the numbers there. They say, well, Germany has three, the United States has nine, so the United States is worse. And, you, you, and the thing is, once you get out of Western Europe, so like Eastern Europe has a lot, uh, once you get outside of Europe, uh, the rest of the world, uh, parts of Asia, parts of South America, have huge numbers, uh, Middle East, have huge numbers of mass public shootings uh, that occur. Uh, one thing I will also say is I, I'm really not surprised that most people don't know about these things. You have something like the shootings in France. Uh, you know, they get a couple of news stories and then they're gone. Uh, most of, you have huge school shootings that have occurred in Russia. The worst school shooting that we know of occurred in Russia back in 2004. You had 180 students that were killed. Um, and, uh, but these attacks in other countries usually just get one news story, usually buried in the back of a newspaper. Um, and that's understandable. If you have an attack in the United States, the American media is going to cover that a lot more than they're going to cover attacks in other countries. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, that's what you expect in terms of newsworthiness, but if you're dealing with the issues of just saying, is this a uniquely American problem? Uh, it colors people's views because they can easily recall 
what seems like a lot of mass public shootings in the United States. And most people can't recall any of the cases in other countries. You know, you'll get a few unusual cases like the New Zealand mosque shooting uh, the, a few years ago that got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. But you know that within less than 24 hours of that, there was a big school shooting in Brazil or that there was a big uh, mass public shooting in uh, the Netherlands that had occurred. Because those uh, really didn't get news coverage because all of the news coverage was about the New Zealand one that was there. Right. I think that's a, a really good point, you know, as far as how, you know, the shootings are covered. It is definitely, you know... Obviously, because the shootings are happening here in the States, they're going to be covered a lot more intensely than you would have in other places, um, just because just the nature we're here, (laughs) you know, but I I do think there is I would would say that there is some sensationalizing going on with just the frequency of which we think these things happen doesn't make them any less tragic or awful, but I do think this is not surprising with the state of the media environment that there is some sensationalizing going on that makes it feel as though these things happen a whole lot. Um, and of course, depending on your definition, whether it's four people or more, three people or more, the numbers can look really bad. But um, one thing I did want to ask about was, what's that? We want it to be zero. I mean, any of them is bad. Right. I, and, and, uh, but I also agree with you that, Look, if you read the diaries, manifestos from these killers, you see how much they're, they want to get media coverage. And so I wish the media would kind of not mention people's names as much as they do, uh, because it really feeds into their desire to have people know that they were here. Um, I do think that there are things that we can do short of getting rid of the First Amendment or something like that. I think that would be dangerous and wrong to do that. But I think um, uh, it gives us a a window, an insight into things that we can do to try to reduce it short of telling the media what they can cover or not cover. But I think the media, a lot of it, you, you mentioned sensationalism. I think a lot of it is driven by whether they can get more clicks or not on this thing. And they're thinking about that more than they're thinking sometimes about kind of what's the long-term impact of the type of coverage that they have. Right. And, and you know, I, I would agree with that. It's, it's definitely the incentive structure is not built to, have the media consider these sorts of things of like, well, maybe we shouldn't name them or shouldn't, you know, put their name on every single headline and story and build them up into this almost like a legendary figure. We're always going to remember Adam Lanza and, uh, you know, some of the others who've conducted these tragedies. But um, I did want to ask you, you were talking about what we can do short of getting rid of the first amendment, which we know that's not going to happen. But um one thing we've heard a lot about in response to some of these shootings, particularly school shootings, is, you know, possibly arming teachers or trying to harden some of these soft targets like schools and malls and grocery stores and even churches. Uh, we know that very well from what happened in South Carolina because of Dylan Roof. And so people are just I think people are just frustrated. They see these things happening 
whether you think they occur as often, we just don't want to see it. And so people are like, well, there has to be something we can do. And so a lot of people are discussing right now, how do we harden these targets? So that could be arming teachers or having armed guards in malls or grocery stores. So just in your opinion, from your research there at the center, just what do you think we should do or can do to maybe better secure some of these soft target locations um, to try to make even either more difficult or just prevent less people from being killed? Right. No, I appreciate your question. Look, um, you know, a lot of people talk about having an armed police officer in a school or a mall, as you say. They have an incredibly difficult job. If you have one person there in uniform and he's the only person with a gun, these attackers have huge tactical advantages. They can either wait for that one officer to leave and then do the attack, or uh, they can go on and move to another target and, and go after that. I mean, we have 332 million people in the United States. We have about 600,000 police officers. You have about maybe a third on duty at any given time. So that's 200,000, maybe 250. 250,000 officers at any point in time simply can't protect 332 million people. And so there's always going to be some place that they can move on to. But the third option that these killers have is if they do decide to go after a place and you know that there's only one person there in uniform who has a gun, who do you think they take out first? So, you know, you look at something like the, uh, the Buffalo grocery store murderer. He had cased the grocery store beforehand. He knew that there was one armed guard that was there. He knew where that one armed guard was stationed. And who do you think he took out first? He took out the armed guard because he knew that once he took him out and he had picked a place where he knew the victims there were not going to have guns for protection, that he'd have free reign to go after the other people that are there. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of faced with, if you're going to put a, an armed police officer in schools or other places, do not put them in uniform and make them blend in. If they're in a school, give them some tasks, you know, make them the PE coach or something like that uh, so that they're not readily identifiable as the person to take out uh, there. And so, and rather than having signs and from the school or the mall uh, that says this place is a gun-free zone, have a sign there that says warning, you know, select uh, staff or teachers at the school have concealed handguns and will use them to go and protect the students uh, and others there. These killers you have to take away their gain. And their gain is the perception that they will get media coverage the more people they kill. And the faster you can get somebody there with a gun, the more you're going to be able to limit the number of people who get killed there. And you make it so they believe they're not going to get media attention. So, you know, Adam Lanza, you mentioned him again, and I talked about him earlier. You know, as I say, this guy graphed out the relationship between the number of people killed and the number of me amount of media coverage that they get. And so, you know, if you convince him that somebody's going to be there very quickly to stop him, 
he thinks, well, I'm not going to be able to go and get more people killed than the Norway killer, or I'm not going to be able to get more people killed than somebody else did. And that's going to limit the amount of media coverage that I'm going to get. That's what you have to try to aim at here. And so if you're not, you know, having a police officer in every place is costly. Uh, and it's also an extremely boring job. I'll just give you a, an analogy. Uh, you know, they have armed air marshals on planes. You know, the average air marshal, you know how long he stays in that job is six months. And the reason is, is because what's the rate that they're actually going to stop something from happening? It's very low. Okay. And uh, could you imagine just having a job where you have to fly back and forth, let's say, across the Atlantic? Uh, you're not allowed to really read something. You're not allowed to go to sleep. You know, you just have to be cognizant and paying attention. And, you know, the odds that you're actually going to do something are effectively zero. <laughs> People are, they get bored out of their mind. I mean, these are smart guys and they quit after six months and move on to something else. And, uh, you're going to have the same thing if you put a, a police officer in a school or what have you, because, you know, we have these horrible tragedies, but how many, we have like, uh, 30,000 schools in the United States, you know, and what's the odds in a school in any given year or even over 10 years is going to have that happen since, since uh, 2000, we've had nine of these mass public school shootings that have occurred. And so, um, I would go and argue you have teachers there anyway. Uh, we have 20 states that have armed teachers in schools. Uh, Texas uh, is one of those states. Uh, they have over 30% of the schools in Texas have armed teachers. The attack at Uvalde was not at one of those schools. It was at a school that banned people being able to go and have guns on school property. I'll just make one other related point, and that is, at Uvalde, uh, you probably have seen the video of the police officer standing in the hallway outside the classroom uh, for 77 right. minutes before they went in. And if you listen to the video, one thing about the video is uh, they remove the screams of the children that you could hear on the video there uh, because they thought it was too traumatic for people. But these officers... Mm -hmm were standing in the hallway while they heard these children screaming and being killed one by one there during the 77 minutes that were there, but they didn't go in. And one thing you have to understand about human nature is that we all think we want to be heroes when something like this happens, but people are afraid of risking their lives. They don't want to die, even police officers. And so it's, understandable, though very regrettable, that these police officers didn't do their job and didn't go in there. But let's say you're a teacher and you're in there. You can't go and hide behind your desk because the person's going to come and kill you. You either use your gun to try to stop him. And I would bet that, that those teachers that were killed wish that they had a gun there at that time. But nobody's saying everybody needs to carry or not. I think the most important thing is having the sign in front of the school that warns these potential killers that, you know, they should worry that there's somebody there that may be able to protect them. And the last point is, even if you are going to have uh, an armed uniformed police officer in these schools, 
if they also have people with concealed handguns, you also make, you make the job of that officer much safer. Because when the attacker reveals his position by going after that police officer who he's going to go after first, he has to worry that there's somebody who he doesn't know has a gun who may be behind him or to the side. And it makes his attack much riskier. You know, Dr. Lott, I, like I said, I'm not a Democrat or Republican, and I know you're in the Trump administration, but I'm sure glad that you know Donald Trump had somebody like you in the administration because you have some really good ideas. I, I, I love the thing about what you said about police in particular because we've talked about policing and education and how you know with us being minorities, a lot of the times police in our schools um, do more harm to kind of um, – uh, demonize students and it almost sends them on a track to where they're more delinquents versus actually protection. Right. And we've talked, you know, even with the superintendent of education out of Washington, how that kind of plays out. So I like what you said about if they are going to be there, let them be a PE teacher, let them blend in, have that signage there. Because I think those are some real, some real uh, solutions that, you know, it doesn't take uh, a lot of time to go ahead and put those in the force and see those effects because I agree. Everyone doesn't need to necessarily be walking around with a gun. I don't think it's, we're in the wild West because you may have a lot of crossfire casualties that may happen if everyone's shooting. But I do like a lot of these points that you said about what we can do to lessen some of these people who are more suicidal looking for attention, because it seems like when we're talking about these very horrific mass public shootings and things that, you know, that, that really gets people's attention, it's usually those sorts of people that are doing it. And I, I love, love what you said uh, about, you know, how we can kind of counter that. Could I make one comment fast on something you just said? And that was uh, the police in the schools. The thing is, these guys feel they have to do something. So if you have a police officer in a school, okay, and nothing's happening, it's almost as if, you know, you gotta, he has to go and justify being there by having something, you know, if there's a problem with the student to arrest the student. Or let's say you have teachers there that are having trouble with a, a student there. In the past, they would talk to him you know, maybe counsel the person or whatever. But if you have a police officer there, the easy thing is just to hand the kid over to the police officer to go and deal with. And so then you're going to have people arrested and whatever that in the past, that's not the way you would have handled it. But listeners, uh, we're going to give you another break and we want to come back with Dr. Lott and talk about what some of the other things that we might can do uh, and some of the other legislation that we've seen that people are starting to uh, put out and actually one in particular is starting to work its way through Congress now. So we're going to get Dr. Lott's thoughts on those. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and ask that you like and follow us on social media, as well as share our content with your network. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter using our handle at Black Agenda Pod. Again, our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we are continuing our conversation with Dr. John R. Lott Jr. Again, he's a world-recognized expert on guns and crime. And so, Dr. Lott, we've had a, a 
winding conversation here about mass shootings and um, gun control, gun violence here in the country. But we want to kind of, in our last segment before we get out of here, we want to kind of look forward. So we want to look at what's happening, what's being done in response to the more recent shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo. And um, one thing that you are starting to see some momentum behind is red flag laws. And so Congress, surprisingly, recently passed bipartisan legislation that poured millions of dollars um, into states to help with creating these red flag laws. And for those who don't know, for our listeners, uh, red flag laws essentially allow um, a person's guns or weapons to be confiscated by police after a petition to the court if law enforcement feels that they are a, they are a danger to the public or themselves. And so I think at the current moment, there's about 19 states that currently have red flag laws on the books. And so um, I guess the question very simply is just kind of, Dr. Lyon, where do you stand or where do you fall as far as um, red flag laws? And do you think this could be one of another tool in the tool belt to help either prevent mass shootings or being able to sort of point out um, shooters before they actually um, carry out these tragedies? Right. Uh, well, I think there is actually better laws in the book, just so people are clear about what red flag laws are. So uh, somebody can make a complaint. Uh, it's given to a judge based solely on the written complaint in front of them. The judge will make a decision whether or not to take away a person's guns. The person isn't notified about it uh, until after the guns are taken away. And then within a period that can be as long as a month, uh, there'll be a hearing. Um, and uh, uh, if you can't afford a lawyer, well, the vast majority of people don't have lawyers in these cases. Because if you talk to lawyers, it costs about $10,000 uh, to hire a lawyer for one of these hearings. So virtually everybody who goes through this doesn't have a lawyer. Because even if you want to keep your guns, um, you know, is it really worth $10,000? Because the only thing that happens to you with red flag laws is they take away your guns. So the alternative is something that all the states and the federal government have. It goes by different names. A lot of them call them Baker Acts in Florida and California. It's called 5150, where uh, they have involuntary commitment. But the way it works is if... Uh, somebody makes a complaint and the police in this case do think that there is justifiable cause, they will take the person into mental health care experts to evaluate and they will be held there and evaluated for 24 or 48 or in some cases 72 hours. If the mental health care experts believe that there is a risk for the person endangering themselves or others, then at that point, uh, there will be an immediate hearing. Um, if a person can't afford a lawyer, one is provided for them. Uh, and the judge then has a whole range of options. Uh, he could say, okay, look, I'm concerned, but I'm not that concerned. I want you to go, if you agree to voluntarily see a mental health care professional, uh, we'll schedule another hearing a week or two weeks or three weeks from now. And we'll we'll reevaluate the situation, or um, they could take away your guns, or uh, in the most extreme case, they can involuntarily commit a person. The the to me the things the weird things about red flag laws is 
they're virtually always used for concerns about suicide. And if you really think that somebody is suicidal, simply taking away their guns is the only solution doesn't seem like a very serious response to me. Uh, because there's so many different ways that somebody can go and commit suicide. If you really are concerned about somebody committing suicide, you know, you're going to have to have a more complete approach than just taking away the person's guns. The other strange thing is that since we are talking about suicide, it's strange that none of the red flag laws actually involve mental health care experts in the evaluation. Uh, I'm not going to go and claim that mental health care professionals are perfect by any means in terms of evaluating whether somebody is suicidal or not, but I think they at least are somewhat better than just uh, a judge who's only going to be looking at a written complaint that's there. Uh, you know, and you run into other risks about uh, with red flag laws since the judge's initial decision is based solely on the written complaint. Uh, there's no cross-examination or anything that occurs there. I'll, I'll give you an example where I think red flag laws can actually accomplish the opposite of what you'd like to have done. Um, the executive director for the Crime Prevention Research Center, uh, it, her name is Nikki Gozer. Uh, about a decade ago, uh, she watched her husband murdered in front of her by uh, a stalker. And um, she, uh, as anybody would be, uh, having one of her stalkers uh, murder her husband, uh, she was incredibly depressed. Um, you could imagine there could be a friend or a neighbor or a relative who would say, uh, you know, Nikki's very depressed. I know she has guns. And just out of legitimate concern, you know, they're a caring person, just want to help out could go and put in a complaint saying, I think maybe you ought to take away her guns that are there. The problem is, uh, if you took away Nikki's guns when uh, she has just watched a, a stalker murder her husband, uh, she would really be in bad shape. Uh, it would make her extremely depressed, even worse than it was beforehand. So the question becomes, if you have that type of law, what does that do to people's ability to go and share their feelings of depression with other people? She would be afraid that somebody might misinterpret it, might be a very well-meaning person that's there. Um, but it's not just Nikki. Uh, take police officers. Police officers uh, are depressed at relatively high rates compared to the general population. Uh, police officers commit suicide at relatively high rates. And the problem is, is that do we really want to have it so police officers or somebody like Nikki are afraid to go and talk to others about their feelings, about what they see on their job or being depressed? Simply many times talking to people about your depression can be very helpful in alleviating the problems that are associated with that depression. And if you make people fearful of talking to others about those things, you may make the depression much worse. Uh, police officers, if you take away a police officer's gun, you take away their job. 
they're not able to be police officers if they are unable to have access to a gun. That's in, you know, it's basically in the code for most police departments. And so uh, the risk that you face with the red flag laws is that you might actually, you know, they're virtually always used for suicide, but you might actually increase the number of suicides there. And there's some research out there uh, that indicates, that in fact, suicide rates go up when you pass these red flag laws. But it, it just is strange to me that you they focus on only w- one way that people can commit suicide as the solution uh, to preventing suicide. And I think that's a great point i think uh because if someone's going to commit suicide a gun isn't you know their only means and there's a bunch of other ways um and i also uh you know think the red uh flag laws uh we have to make sure that we tailor those in the right way like you said of having an evaluation having the judge i hope though that people um aren't too fearful to talk about their depression because they think someone will take away their guns. Um, and maybe people are clinging too heavy to their second amendment rights or so, but, um, listeners, if you are out there and you need to talk to someone about mental health, don't be afraid that they're going to take you or your guns, make sure you address that. But one of the things that I wanted to also address within this segment here, uh, doing a little bit of research, uh, we saw uh, from John Hopkins Center for Gun Violence and Solutions, uh, Doctor or Mister, I don't, I can't, I don't know if he's a doctor, but Daniel Webster, co-director, and some of his colleagues, they looked at mass shootings over the past thirty years, and they were like, you know, trying to figure out what policies are the most effective at reducing mass shootings, and they only came up with two out of all the policies that we have for gun violence and gun control, there was only two that they really saw that could reduce mass shootings. One of those was a licensing program, and the other was banning large capacity magazines or ammunition feeding devices. So a lot of people argue that, you know, this legislation is not the answer, that a lot of people illegally obtain guns and even build firearms themselves nowadays. So, Dr. Lott, when you, you know, see sort of legislation like, you know, banning large capacity magazines or even the current legislation we have that's been pushed over to the Senate to ban assault rifles, you know, do you, do you think that these are just things that we're doing right now because we're going into midterms and people are looking for votes or are these real solutions to help with mass shootings? Yeah. I mean, I wish it was as simple as, uh, as those types of rules. Uh, you know, the thing like a magazine, I, I don't know if people realize all it is is a box with a spring in it. I've seen people with very simple machine tools put together a magazine literally from scratch in like two minutes. Uh, The notion that you're going to be able to stop people from making something as trivially simple as a box with a spring in it, if that's what they want to have, just doesn't seem very practical to me. And, uh, you know, the thing is... um, Uh, You know, we were talking earlier about these mass public shootings in other countries. Uh, And when you look at a per capita rate, you have a number of countries in Western Europe, like France or Norway or Finland or uh, 
uh, Switzerland, uh, Russia, that have much higher per capita rates than we have in here in the United States. Many of those countries have extremely strict gun control laws. Um, France, for example, uh, bans semi-automatic guns. Uh, you know, 85% of the handguns in the United States are semi-automatics. A similar percentage of rifles in the United States are semi-automatic guns. Um, you know, you look at, but yet, you know, you have a lot of these Western European countries that have all these rules and more that we're talking about here, and yet they have these mass public shootings at a high rate once you adjust for the differences in population that are there. Um, you know, uh, you go through like this new assault weapons ban or the one that was passed, went into effect in 1994 for 10 years, and they have page after page of naming different guns that are there. Here's the problem that you have. They go through and look at magazines, catalogs for guns, and they pick guns based on how they look rather than how they function. Uh, that's the only reason why they list out the guns by name. And uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me to go and ban guns based on how they look. So one of the frequent uh, statements that we hear is military style where the key word there is style. So look, some people like red sports cars, you know, some people like other colored cars. Some people apparently like guns that look like military weapons, but they're not military weapons that are there. They're, you know, when you're talking about an AR-15, which is among the types of guns that they're planning on banning in this legislation, um, AR-15s, uh, are functionally identical to small caliber hunting rifles. They fire the same bullets with the same rapidity, doing the same damage. So if we want to go and ban all semi-automatic guns and, and, the, and the assault weapons bill that passed uh, the, the House uh, is going to ban the vast majority of rifles in the United States, then fine, let's talk about banning uh, semi-automatic guns. The thing is, uh, civilians benefit using semi-automatic guns for defense. So they have three different types of guns. You have manually loaded guns where you pull the trigger, a bullet comes out, and then you have to physically yourself put another bullet in the chamber. You have semi-automatic guns, which... You pull the trigger, one bullet comes out, and it reloads itself. One pull the trigger, one bullet comes out and reloads itself. And then you have machine guns or fully automatic guns. Those are the military-type weapons. And as long as you have the trigger depressed, bullets will come out. The thing is, um, if you're just talking about the first two, civilians benefit a lot from being able to have a semi-automatic gun. If you have to fire, if you're being attacked, and you have to fire more than one shot, you may not have the luxury of time to manually reload your gun. So if you have two criminals that are attacking you, or if you fire and miss, or if you fire and wound but don't, don't incapacitate the attacker, you may not have the time 
to go and fire a second shot and reload the gun that's there. And so, you know, so much of this discussion talks about the harm, but these guns make it easier for bad things to happen, but they also make it easier for people to protect themselves and prevent bad things from happening. And the question is, what's the net effect? There are two points I'd like to make. One is, we keep on hearing about gun crime. Do you know that less than 8% of violent crime involves guns in any way? So I want to reduce crime. I mean, we know where the crime occurs overwhelmingly in poor, urban, heavily minority areas. Those are the victims of violent crime. You want to go and figure out how do you make it risky for criminals in those areas to go and commit crimes. Well, the way you make it risky is by having higher arrest rates, higher conviction rates, longer prison sentences uh, for those individuals that are there. Their victims are very similar in terms of race and income and other things to the people who are committing these, these crimes that are there. And the high crime rate in those places doesn't just hurt the direct victim of the crime, it hurts other people. Where, who do you think owns many of the businesses that are there? Who do you think works in those types of businesses? Who do you think shops in those stores, which either go out of business or have to charge higher prices to go and deal with that? Who do you think owns homes in those areas whose property values go down because of the higher crime rates that are there? All those people are harmed in many different ways as a result of the crime. And you need to make it risky, I would argue. So you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen this big spike in violent crime. Well, you know, it's not rocket science. Uh, New York City's cut the police budget there by a billion dollars a year. You have similar cuts in other places. Uh, you have prosecutors in many of these places who are refusing uh, to prosecute violent criminals. We just had this case of this uh, bodega operator in New York City, uh, 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 somebody who immigrated 20 years ago from Jamaica, uh, who uh, used was being attacked and, and stabbed the attacker to death. And the person who acted defensively was the guy who ended up going to jail. Uh, now he was released finally after the outcry that was there. Over the last couple of years, in many of the urban areas across the country, we've had over half of the inmates released from jails and prisons. We've had bail reform that's made it so that criminals. So you have like the guy who drove uh, the SUV into the Christmas parade in Wisconsin, who killed six people and sent over uh, 60 people to the hospital. He had already been arrested and out on bail for attempted murder of the mother of his child. He had tried to run her over with the same car. He had four other felony arrests that he was waiting for trial on. He was released on $1,000 in bail. If you add up all the prison terms that he was facing, he was, he was facing like 30 years in prison. The guy is 38 years old. He's already facing a lifetime prison term. What do you think the cost that you can impose on him if he goes out and kills six more people? Is it like, okay, he already has one life sentence. If we impose the second life sentence, that will deter him 
It's almost like he gets free crimes after that if he's already facing what amounts to a prison term that he's not likely to get out until he's about 70 anyway. And so, you know, my concern is uh, who benefits the most from owning guns uh, and who gets harmed. And the thing is, the people who benefit the most are among the most vulnerable people in our society. If my research convinces me of anything, there's two groups who benefit the most. People who are relatively weaker physically, women and the elderly. You're almost always talking about young male criminals doing the attack. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're talking about a man attacking a woman or an elderly person, there's a lot larger strength difference that exists there than a man attacking another similarly aged man. And, and the weaker people have a much bigger change in their ability to go and protect themselves from having a gun than it does for a man. The other group of people that I find who benefit the most from owning guns are people who live in these high crime urban areas, overwhelmingly poor blacks, who live in high crime urban areas are the ones that my research finds who benefit the most. It'd be great if the police were there to protect people all the time, but they're not. And the question is, what should people do when they're having to confront a criminal by themselves? And my concern, you ask about different types of gun control laws. My concern is that a lot of the different types of gun control laws primarily disarm the people who benefit the most. I'll give you one example. One of the things that get pushed all the time after these mass public shootings are background checks on the private transfers of guns. In Washington, D.C., where they live, it costs $125 to do a background check on a private transfer of a gun. That may not stop me from being able to go and buy a gun, but my concern is effectively a $125 tax there may make it so that the law-abiding people who want to go through the proper process to go and buy a gun to protect themselves and their families are going to be stopped from being able to go and do so. And, and if you want to encourage people to go and do the background checks, how is making them paying $125? And, and the thing is, just give you an idea. You think, Adrian or Devin, let's say you and I lived in D.C., and I'm going to give one of you guys four guns. So it's just John mm-hmm. Adrian four guns. You think it's just one person giving one person four guns. It's just be one background check, right? But no, the right. law in, in D.C. and California and these other states require a separate background check on each gun. So it would cost $500 mm-hmm. for me to go and give you the guns that are there. Explain to me how that isn't purposely set up just to make it costly for people. And there's one last thing uh, I should point out, if you, if you don't mind. And that is... Yeah, go ahead. The, these background checks, you know, we'll frequently hear that there's 3.8 million dangerous or prohibited people that have been stopped from buying guns because of background checks. And that's simply false. What they should say is that there have been 3.8 million initial denials. And about 99% of those are mistakes. It's one thing to stop a felon from buying a gun. It's another thing to stop somebody simply because they have a name similar to a felon from buying a gun. And those mistakes 
overwhelmingly discriminate against law-abiding black males and Hispanic males. And there's a simple reason for that. And that is 33% of black males have felony records. And people tend to have names similar to others in their racial groups. Hispanics tend to have names similar to other Hispanics. Blacks tend to have names similar to other Blacks. Whose names are their names going to be confused with? Other law-abiding people in their, in their groups there. And there's no reason for these mistakes should be occurring. If private companies, when they do background checks on employees, had an error rate that was 100th the error rate that the federal government has in doing these background checks, they would be sued out of existence under federal law. <laughs> why, did, why does the federal government make these mistakes? Because they look at roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays in making these checks. There's no reason why they should be doing that. If, if the rules are good enough for private companies to do background checks, they should be good enough for the federal government to do the background checks. But gun control advocates will fight you tooth and nail against making what I think is a very reasonable, simple reform. Just have the federal government have to meet the same standards for doing background checks that would require private companies. If you, if you go to a private company and you say, you know, I think you ought to do employee background checks by looking at roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays, they will look at you like you're from Mars because they will know that you're going to have all sorts of mistakes that are going to discriminate against certain people. But, you know, I think, and I've been making this thing for 20 years. I've, I've said, look, if you want to get your background checks passed, there's a couple simple changes that you could make to do it. One of the main ones is just getting rid of these mistakes. But, they will fight you on that. And it's gotten me to believe that they care more about making it costly and difficult for people to go and get guns, particularly for poor people, particularly for minorities to go and own guns, than it is than they care about getting background checks passed. I would definitely um, agree with that last point that the you know, the fee, the $125 extra tax, whatever it may be, is there, you know, to make it more difficult to acquire guns or to transfer ownership and things like that. And that's a conversation, I believe it was last year we've had um, about, you know, gun ownership in the black community. And that used to be, we used to have a high rate of gun ownership in our community, and that is not the case anymore. But I do think that's something we should be looking at because you do make a fair point and we've talked about you know crime in, in our neighborhoods and and why it's it tends to concentrate in in poor communities and in what we kind of saw talking you know with with another expert like yourself on the show about crime was just that when you find um typically young males who don't have any sort of connection to the community aren't working um that's where you will more than likely find crime i mean that's that's kind of how it's working um, or at least that's what the data and the research is showing. And so when COVID happened and you, you send people home and you force them to be at home, that's why we saw this humongous rise in, in violent crime because the opportunity was there. Everybody was at home. Um, and so we see these things. We have solutions. But I think hearing you talk about all the different reasons, you know, talking about red flag laws and maybe hardening some of these targets, arming some of the teachers, having... 
um, you know, folks who are armed be blended into the populace in some of the malls and different areas. I think it just highlights how complicated of an issue it is. And there is no one true solution. I don't agree with the side that says, you know, we need to ban all assault rifles and things like that, because that's not going to work either. And and I don't think we can stand pat and do nothing either. I think there's a multitude of solutions that could lead to some sort of progress, but I don't think we're going to find our one silver bullet. I don't think it exists. And people think well, it I mean, does, I unfortunately. I mean, I'm frustrated. I want to try to go and do something. My my concern is that a lot of the media coverage actually prevents us from doing the types of things that we need to do. So the fact that, you know, you have something like the Buffalo mass uh, murderer who in his diary, or I mean, in his manifesto, explicitly talks about why he picked the target that he did. Why can't any of the media mention that? The media talked about his manifesto, but you will search in vain to find any media out, news media outlet mention that he picked the target that he did because he knew the victims there weren't going to have concealed handguns to be able to go and protect themselves. I can give you many similar cases. Why? Why can't any news media m- mention that? Or, you know, you have uh, all these attacks that keep on occurring in places where guns are banned. You know, they'll mention things like how they think the guy got the gun, or they'll mention things like um, uh, what gun was used. The sim- And often the initial news stories are wrong about those things. The simplest thing to check that you can check often in a minute or two for these things is where... Did uh, or where did the attack occur? Did it occur in a, a place where guns were banned? And yet, again, you will search in vain for anybody in the media, news media, mention that. My guess is that the entire gun control debate that we have right now would be very different if they actually covered those parts of the manifestos or diaries where they explain that they're picking a target where they know victims can't defend themselves because they know that. If they kill more people, they can do that in that area and they'll get more media attention. What? Or if they mention that the, we've had yet another mass public shooting in a place where guns are banned. I, it, I find it very frustrating. For 20 years, I've been trying to go and stop these types of attacks from occurring. And I just, and I just think the media just has a real problem in getting out the information that would be useful in in stopping these attacks, helping people understand what motivates them and how we stop them. Yeah, I totally agree. The media is um, is very bad about trying to actually educate and build about public awareness to help people. It's more about ratings and uh, yeah, ratings, and cable television, about profits. Yeah, it's always the big about networks. That. Like when we say media, we ha- I do. I, I agree with what you're saying, John. I just in my head, I, I think we have to make a distinction that the national media we're talking about is the real perpetrator of this. The CNN, oh, yeah. the NBC's, the Fox. They're the ones who I have a real issue with the way that things are reported. And it is sensationalized. It's all geared to keep you glued to the television however on the local level the local media i think there's some really really good work that's done there where things are better much better reported (laughs) and i'll also agree with you john on what you said about um 
what we've done with policing, uh, bail and sentencing things, because we've reported on our show a lot about police reform and how, especially like in places like LA and stuff like that, you've seen how some of their crime has gone on the rise because there's less people to protect. Um, I do agree with some people who say it's not necessarily about a tough on crime because then we can get to where we were, where we're, you know, tough on crime was mainly mainly tough on black people. But I, uh, again, I understand high crime areas are oftentimes black and brown neighborhoods. So it's one of those things to where, um, you know, it's not necessarily a cause and, you know, response or causation kind of thing. But uh, we've, we've talked about so much, John, and we just really appreciate you for being on our show because I feel like we've got an arsenal of tools to help to educate and advocate people to work towards and to actually consult their elected officials about versus some of the things that we've seen that is being passed like assault rifle ban. So really, really great episode and listeners, just to make sure that we plug uh, Dr. Lott and the organization again, uh, remember that Dr. Lott, uh, he is an economist, well-recognized expert in guns and crime, as well as the founding president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. And Dr. Lott, um, how can our listeners keep up with the Crime Prevention Research Center? Well, thank you. Uh, they can go to our website at crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org, and we have all the stuff that we've been talking about. It's available there. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Lott. We'll make sure to let our listeners know how to find that as we do our media promotions for this episode. Uh, listeners, we're going to give you your last break and Devin and I will come back and do the ending, but we're going to say goodbye to John. But listeners, make sure you stick with us for the ending so you can be on the loop for what's to expect in the future. So we'll be right back. You've been listening to the Black Agenda podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know. Before you go, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. So sit back and listen well as we get back into the show. Listeners, welcome back. Let's get into it and give you our ending here just to kind of give you an insight into all the happenings of this month. Remember that we're doing our theme for the month where we're highlighting one particular episode as in one particular topic. Uh, and remember this month to kind of go along with what we just talked about, um, our theme is going to be mass shootings and kind of to get a better understanding of what that looks like, because I know that that's been a big thing on everyone's minds as we've had a lot of recent mass shootings. So um, that's going to be our theme for the month of August. Remember that you can donate to us. That's a really, really, really awesome thing to do. Um, you donate to us because you not only believe in what we do, but you want to see us grow and do more. Remember, you can go in the timestamps and click the donate tab. Or if you want to get fancy, you can head over to our website. Um, you can even go to the Patreon page, which is patroen.com slash black agenda pod. So make sure you do that. Since we are getting into a new month, you know, we got to do a new charity of the month. Um, and since we've been talking about guns, you know, things like that, we figured we could kind of keep it in line with that 
but talk about an organization that's trying to teach gun education to our community. We actually had them on our podcast. The organization is NAGA, which is the National African American Gun Association. Their goal is to establish a Second Amendment organization that educates and trains our community on the rich legacy of gun ownership of African Americans, offering education, training, support, safety standards, and cultural inspiration. Their long-term goal of the National African American Gun Association is to have every African American introduced to firearms uh, for home protection, competitive shooting, and outdoor recreational activities. They welcome people of all religious political, social, and racial backgrounds. Like I said, that organization is NAGA, which is the National African American Gun Association. In case you don't remember, we have news articles. You can go to our website, which is just blackagendapie.com, and you can click on the news tab there, and it'll take you to all of our journalist articles. We've got an amazing team of journalists that are writing topics that are near and dear to our community. So we'd love for you to read those and let us know what you think about it. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Even though we're you know, mainly doing our social media marketing through Twitter this season, you can still find us in all those platforms. Our handle is just at Black Agenda Pod. Again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. Remember, you'll only see us making posts with Twitter, but you can find all of our good stuff on Instagram, Facebook as well. Wanted to give a last thanks to Dr. Lott and the Crime Prevention Research Center. Dr. Lott gave a lot of great policy ideas. There might be some things you might not disagree with the tough on crime stance and things like that. And we've even talked about that on the podcast. So that's why I made sure to bring that up. But I really, really thank uh, Dr. Lott for giving us so much great insight into this topic and helping to educate us over a lot of the misconceptions. And of course, thank you to the Crime Prevention Research Center for making him available. And as always, we got to give you, our listeners, a final thanks and farewell. Um, we really appreciate you sticking with us. Um, it was an awesome, awesome conversation. We've got more to come. Make sure you be with us this weekend when we come back for weekly roundup number six. So until then, we'll catch you next time.